A dream, broken, can precipitate a myriad of outcomes. Surrender, resolve, change certainly an entirely new direction. Or perhaps a doubling down, a fresh, unyielding devotion to the endangered vision. Maybe all of the above. This is a story about someone who refused to let his dream die, even when it seemed to pull him in opposing directions. It's a story about relationship and conflict and justice and love, about impossible tasks and courage and grief and joy. And it's a story about new beginnings on the far side of broken dreams. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. As he ushers the earth along its elliptical orbit, Yahweh spins the great sphere on its 23 and a half degree axis, pulling each plain, each ocean, each mountain peak and valley toward the sun in turn. He fuels the great hydrogen fireball, sending its rays through space at 186,000 miles per second. Eight minutes later, that light falls on the leaves of a tangerine tree eliciting in its cells a photosynthetic flurry. Just below the branches, morning dew, left by the fingers of Yahweh in the night, rolls down off of blades of grass and onto, into the soil. Coaxing it downward, he introduces a meeting between water molecules and root hairs, the latter ingesting the former thirstily, reversing their course and pulling them up, up into the heart of the tree. First, a white blossom, then a tiny green orb. The green fades to orange. Yahweh intensifies the color, deepening the saturation as the fruit grows larger and he makes the flesh inside sweeter. Yahweh grins in anticipation as the vessel of water, fiber, sugar, protein, vitamins, and calcium waits to be enjoyed, to give energy and sustain life, to enable love, generosity, worship. Just as it reaches its peak, the tangerine is plucked, ripped open, and consumed by a man on his way to his brother's house. He arrives to find his brother is traveling and, with the sugars of the citrus running through his veins, promptly rapes his brother's wife. Where has Eden gone? This is good. That's what Yahweh had said when he created the world. And then, 
gazing at the man and the woman he'd made in his own image. It was very good. But when Eve and Adam rejected his command and embraced the lying serpent, everything changed. Evil spread like a disease, and person after person chose against him, against righteousness, against love. And now, it's everywhere, unmitigated and rampant, generationally entwined, systematically instilled, every inclination of the human heart, nothing but evil. All of these people he loves, ignoring him and hating and hurting one another, breaking Yahweh's heart, incurring unignorable guilt. In his grief, he knows something must be done. It is not right to sit by and let this continue. But it's everyone, everyone. And a sufficient response to the depth and breadth of evil being perpetrated would mean it's almost unthinkable. In the beginning, he wanted closeness, intimacy, to love and to be loved by these marvelous beings he created in his image, to be their father, their friend, to walk with them, like the early days with Adam and Eve, like he does now with Noah. But now, Noah is the only one, him and his little family. There could be more, though, more children who love his other children, more women and men who abandon the enemy and renounce their hatred and violence and greed. All this sin could be washed away. Yahweh, ever the optimist, is certain. He and humanity, they could walk together again. They will walk together again. But first, there must be an ending and a beginning. And it must be Noah. Noah, Yahweh speaks to his friend. Time to usher him into the grief that comes from knowing what's about to happen. Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Yahweh can hear Noah's thoughts. Put an end to every creature destroy the earth. He wills himself to continue. Make yourself an ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make rooms in it and cover it with a roof. The sides are to rise to within 18 inches of the roof, and you're to build lower and middle and upper decks. Again, Yahweh hears Noah's mind racing, trying desperately to process. An ark? What is an ark? And why so enormous? Understand, says Yahweh, that I am bringing a flood 
I will bring floodwaters onto the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Can a simple sentence be difficult for God to say? So many unsayable sentences. Noah, everything on earth will perish. He watches as understanding washes over Noah's face, coloring it in primal dread. But, Yahweh continues, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. A glimmer of hope flashes across Noah's eyes. And then Yahweh tells Noah about the animals, his soon-to-be traveling companions, the co-heirs of this promised salvation, pairs of every creature, male and female. Keep them alive with you, Yahweh tells the old man. And knowing the question before it's asked, he says, I will bring them to you. And so Noah, with this precious handful of information, sets to work. His family, no doubt, helps. He employs laborers, even, perhaps, to assist with the immense project. Trees felled, trunks milled, timber joined, over 114,750 square feet of surface area, a displacement of 43,000 tons. Lower and middle and upper decks built inside the vast structure, along with the multitude of rooms and compartments. Then pine trees tapped and resin gathered, charcoal created and pounded into dust, the resin rolled in the black powder and heated over a fire until it melts. Finally, that pitch applied to seal every joint on the exterior of the ark. Every single one. In all, it takes Noah a long time to complete the ark. Not years, but decades. Decades upon decades. What must the people around him think? This ridiculous old man building a mammoth box nowhere close to the sea, gathering grain season after season, setting aside hay, an absurd amount of food. How much are the eight of them planning on eating in there? When they ask Noah why, does he tell them? Does he share what Yahweh told him? If he does, if he offers them a place in the ark, no one accepts. They shake their heads, mocking the man who's wasting his life, toiling away in obedience to an invisible God. How foolish. The week before the rains come is eventful. Yahweh calls and hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals respond, gathered from the four winds, two of each kind, seven pairs of the animals for sacrifice, emerging from the tree line as Noah watches in wonder. 
Harpy eagles, snow leopards, pygmy sloths, rockhopper penguins, giant bison, green anoles, white-eared possums, sword-billed hummingbirds, Asian elephants, ring-tailed lemurs, bighorned sheep, gibbons, flamingos, tapirs, desert tortoises, zebras, harbor seals, black rats, wild boar, guinea fowl, short-tailed chinchillas, monitor lizards, koalas, white-collared swifts, purple sandpipers, great blue herons, howler monkeys, black rhinoceroses, white-tailed jackrabbits, rock pythons, gray foxes, camels, ringed geckos, horses, crocodiles, caribou, scarlet macaws, nine-banded armadillos, muscovy ducks, red-faced cormorants, Siberian tigers, free-tailed bats, shrews, brown pelicans, capybaras, peregrine falcons, king snakes, snowy owls, giant pandas, keel-billed toucans, reticulated giraffes, oh, and the insects, too many to begin to name. Yahweh smiles, certainly, at this cross-section of creation, this epic cavalcade of life and color, personality and skill, shape and sound, leaping, skittering, flying, crawling, creeping, lumbering, slithering, loping, cantering, waddling, swinging, flitting, buzzing, strutting, trotting, fluttering, bounding, scampering, prowling, gliding, and hopping toward the ark of salvation. Even in the midst of all the sorrow, Yahweh's heart brims with joy and the hope of a new genesis. The last time he paraded his animals before a man was in Eden. It was the first time Adam had seen most of those creatures, his eyes wide with surprise and delight, much like Noah's now. What fun it is to see someone you love enjoy something you made. But the joy of this moment will soon give way to untold horror. At long last, Yahweh tells Noah it's time to board the vessel he's worked tirelessly on for so very long. Enter the ark, Noah, you and your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. Noah obeys and leads his wife and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives onto the ark, to the soundtrack, perhaps, of his neighbors' jeers and mockery. Yahweh seals the door and readies himself for what's to come. An auditing of accounts, a calling in of debts, a reckoning. Just as he gathered the animals, Yahweh gathers the waters. Great storm clouds assemble in the heavens, painted a Stygian gray, heavy with justice. The air, charged, electric. Finally, the alto stratus and cumulonibus clouds can bear it no longer. 
They burst as if punctured by an invisible blade, rain thrown headlong toward the earth in hosts of huge droplets. At the same time, Yahweh opens the floodgates of the deep, calling forth reservoirs far below the surface, water surging upward at his command. In moments, everything is soaked. In minutes, the waters cover blades of grass and the gnarled roots of olive trees. Lizards and spiders and field mice dart between obstacles, trying in vain to find a safe haven. The sound of the hammering rain is deafening. Finches duck their heads beneath tree branches and cats scamper atop rocks in pursuit of higher ground. Wildlife everywhere, in fact, are racing upward. Driven by instinct, they head toward treetops, hills, mountains, as the earth becomes a tumultuous sea. The people, on the other hand, are slower to respond. At first interested, then mildly alarmed, then incredulous as the waters continue to fall and to rise. One by one, they reluctantly abandon their homes, the floods having established dominance over their shut doors and paltry defenses. Neighbors shout at each other, family members fight over which possessions to grab on their way out. As the waters cascade from above and beneath, the bottom of the massive arc begins to shift. This is the first day. Three days later, and the rains have not stopped. The water now dislodges the ark, wresting it from the arms of the soil, from the earth's decades-long embrace. For the first time, Noah's colossal craft floats above once dry ground. Five days. Thunder claps and rolls. Lightning shoots downward from the heavens like arrows from a cosmic bow. Even the hills now threaten to be swallowed up. Seven days. The high ground is occupied. Without a place to flee, terrified men and women watch from the branches of trees, from stacked rocks, from bricks hastily thrown into piles, impotent as the rain lashes and the floodwaters surge. Finally, the interloping sea engulfs their extempore roosts and sets them adrift. How long can a person tread water? These people find out the exact number of minutes and seconds. It's less if you've got a child in your arms. Though this does not seem to be a problem, these parents, making every effort to ensure their own survival, have long since abandoned their babies. A water buffalo kicks furiously, the whites of its gaping eyes slipping below the surface. Sharks, far from their usual hunting grounds and weakened by the brackish water in which they find themselves, take solace in a plethora of easy prey. A dog, face scarred from liberal applications of a man's switch, dodges the swirling debris. Resolute and ever hopeful, she paddles in vain, searching for her pups. 
Everywhere, bodies bob, limbs flailing in the torrent. A woman curses and snarls as a man swept alongside her grabs her hair and pushes up as if she's a scrap of wood. One after another, the water coaxes young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from their precious perches. Every one of these bodies, formed by Yahweh in its mother's womb. The cells, the markings imprinted in its fur, or the shape of its nose, the sound of his laugh, or the way she tilts her head when she's watching a bird in flight. All of Yahweh's fastidious choices, all his painstaking attention to detail, all his dreams of a future that could be, all of it is no more. The rain, the rushing water are loud. The cries of the beasts and the screams of the people are louder. But it all pales in comparison to the wailing of Yahweh. Wrecked, pummeled by waves of emotion, he holds his breath and continues to dispense the nightmarish judgment. Thirty-two days. The ark, tossed by the wind and battered by the unceasing deluge, is dry inside. Noah and his family wake up each morning, peer out the window slit at the still stormy skies, and begin their routine. First, they pray. They pray to the God who made the earth and the skies and the sea and everything in them, the God of storms and calm, of mercy and justice, of laughter and tears. Then they eat the same simple meal with which they've begun the day every day for the last five weeks. Having eaten, they set about the Herculean task of caring for every single animal. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives split up and, like a finely calibrated machine, haul food up and down the corridors. Traveling from compartment to compartment, they canvas the decks, feathers of every color and fur of every texture and scales of every size in their periphery at every moment. Oh, and smells of every sort in their nostrils. That food has to go somewhere. The work is relentless, sometimes miserable, but it is a wonder knowing that each of these pairs, it's the last of these animals in existence. Every ounce of life on this ship is precious. Every species, humanity included, endangered, but accordingly protected as well. Forty-one days, the earth has been baptized. Early in the morning, 
before dawn, the constant thrum of raindrops on the roof stops. Noah snaps his head toward the roof along with every animal in the ark. In the silence, Noah looks at his wife. Without a word, she scrambles to her feet. They stumble into the corridor, perhaps, and almost collide with Japheth and his wife. The others, too. All eight of them hurry to the third deck, and Noah climbs the ladder to the window at the roof line. He looks out and sees no rain. And no land. Just a vast, two-dimensional plane stretching on to the horizon. No trees. No mountains. No towns, no inhabitants. The earth is formless and empty. Darkness covers the surface of the watery depths, the ark hovering over them. The air is still, but as Noah looks down, he can see that the waters are churning, agitated from beneath by some sort of force. It's just swirling liquid chaos. It seems this event is far from over. Day 150. Yahweh closes the fountains of the deep. And then, finally, he breathes. A wind blows over the surface of the water. Evaporation accelerates. The floodwaters begin to recede. Soon, Yahweh brings his precious ark to rest in the Ararat Mountains. Day 271. Noah gazes out the window, his hands carefully cupped together. Outside, he can see the tops of mountains. They emerged about seven weeks ago, and every day they grow taller. He lifts his hands to the ledge and opens them to reveal the white wings, the slender neck, the wide ebony eye of a dove. He sends the bird aloft and prays, certainly, that it finds dry ground. The raven he set out last week did not come back, but he can't be sure if it found a place to land or if it flew too far and fell from the sky exhausted. Any loss of life at this point, even a single bird, feels like an unbearable tragedy. But they must know if they can exit the ark, and so he sends out the dove. Noah is waiting by the window a few days later, though, when he spots it in the sky, heading toward him. He reaches his weathered hands out to welcome his little friend, her heart racing from uninterrupted flight. Not yet. Day 278. Noah climbs to the window once again, his hands carefully cupped. He releases the dove, prays again, and waits. As he stands there at the window, does Noah think about what's been lost? Do the screams of the drowned echo in his ears? 
Does he shed a tear as he tries one more time to wrap his mind around the scale of destruction he's witnessed? Does he look to the heavens and tremble? Does he look to the heavens and raged? As one of the last representatives of the human race, is he indignant? Or is he just afraid? Hours pass. The sun moves toward the horizon. Nothing. At twilight, though, a white shape appears against the purple sky. Noah opens his hands, and the dove flutters to a stop on his wrinkled palm. She folds her wings, turns her head toward him, and in her beak is an olive branch. Day 371. Come out of the ark, Yahweh says to Noah, and watches Noah emerge, blinking, as if from a tomb, his family following behind. A procession of animals then files out of the ark. A winding ribbon of creature after creature, color after color, reds, oranges, yellows, greens, blues, indigos, violets. Have some of the pairs become trios? Do lambs and baby goats and tiger cubs tumble out onto the matted grass, their feet touching terra firma for the very first time? But this is not exactly virgin soil. Yahweh's heart breaks once again as Noah looks around at a world forever changed. A landscape strewn with bodies, carcasses swollen, decomposing in the spring air. Human corpses held aloft in the branches of trees, as if creation were offering up the offenders to the judge, calling out for justice, or recognizing it. How will Noah respond? As he surveys the carnage, the decision, Will he weigh Yahweh in the balances and find him wanting? He could never understand the verdict, the response justice demanded. Could he? With his finite perspective, can he love, walk with at least, a God who punishes sin so severely? Will Noah be able to see in his own salvation the heart of Yahweh? Or will he turn away? Noah and his family are all that are left of Yahweh's beloved humanity. Did Yahweh, in doing the right thing and quelling the wickedness, lose the heart of his only friend? Noah looks to his left and to his right says something to Ham and Shem and Japheth, and they begin gathering stones. They stack them into a pile, and then Noah returns to the ark. He emerges again with one of the animals who was missing from the procession earlier, its precious beating heart a wonder in this empty place. And then Yahweh watches as Noah places the animal on the newly formed altar and takes its life. Noah goes again 
brings back another animal and offers it as a sacrifice, and another, and another. Never has someone given so much from so little. The fire sets the offering ablaze, and the smoke, the aroma, it smells like trust, like love, like an olive branch. Yahweh beams, joy in his eyes. They're going to make it together, these two. Yahweh is a lover of covenants, promises made to be kept, agreements rooted in love. This day calls for a covenant, and a covenant calls for a sign, a cosmic bow, no arrows in sight, a bow laid on its side, laid to rest. It will appear in spectacular, extravagant color when storm clouds threaten, when the heavens seem to threaten vengeance on the earth again. It will appear as the sun's light shines through and mingles with the darkness. And when it appears, it will remind Yahweh of Noah, of the power of just a little leaven, of the promise he made as he smelled the sacrifices that day the lives taken not by God, but by a man who understood that some things are worthy of death. But enough dying, enough global graves, not again, never again like this. Yahweh says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Let this rainbow stand as a reminder, materializing in skies across the world every single day, a reminder to Yahweh of his promise, of his resolution. If the whole world becomes sinful again, when the whole world becomes sinful again, only one death will be required, and not one of them, one of us. That will be enough to get us all together back to Eden.
hey, Justin, one more time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. What a joy it is to share these stories with you. I'm thrilled to let you know as season one comes to an end that season two will begin sometime late this summer. And I'll be spending the time in between now and then researching and writing, gathering music and storyboarding and praying for you guys that you will see your father more clearly and love him more deeply because of these stories. If you want to keep up with Holy Ghost Stories Season 2 developments and my global wanderings and stuff I think is cool, I send a Substack newsletter a couple of times a month that is worth its weight in gold. Literally, it's like an email newsletter, so it doesn't weigh anything. It's called The Latest, and you should totally subscribe. There's a link to that in the show notes. And finally, huge props and gratitude to the Tours on Patreon. Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Jamie, Alyssa, Ken, Jessica, Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jamie, Nelwyn, Jack, Terry, Stevens, Liz, Patrick, Kimmy, Brandy, Mindy, Stephen, Maddie, April, Eric, John, and Sarah. You're all amazing. All right, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you this summer when season two begins. Till then. Till then.